The Mojo Radio Show. We scour the planet to find the biggest names in health, creativity, wellness, strategy, brand, performance, management, and more. Turn this up. This is going to be crazy. This is Jason Overcome Redman. Hey, I'm Dave Acosta. Hi, this is Cal Newport, author of Deep Work. G'day, this is Ryan Park. I'm Batman. This is Ivan Davies from my town. I'm Andrea Burke from the Canadian National Women's Rugby Team. And Lucas Fickendee. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. This is the Mojo Radio Show, where I'll be coming to see you. Then we ask them the big questions. Oh, man, this is such a great question. You've actually landed right on the mark. That's a, another really good question. It's great talking to some clever dudes, frankly. I've gone probably a little bit more in-depth with you than, uh, than I have in the book. I've done, like, 500 interviews, but nobody asked me about this. <laughs> oh, wow. And sometimes we talk about darts. There we go. Can I tell you, Dina, Gary's favourite sport is darts. How athletic is that? I think it's uh, interesting that it's your favourite, but I won't be judgmental. (laughs) Look, it's the only sport that I know of where a prerequisite is a pint of beer and a cigarette. Come on, let's be honest. The Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. So you try throwing half a dozen darts in a row and just see how you go, Uh, my friend. But we hope you will. Welcome. I got my book. To the Mojo Radio Show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show, the little radio program designed to help you get your mojo working in and out of work. We really have had some tremendous guests this year so far, all dropping gold from a great height. And I've got to say, this week's guest is no different. And what we have in the pipeline really just keeps just keeps getting better, honestly. I, I have to say we have got some wonderful shows ahead for you, our listeners. Thank you for joining us today. Let's quickly do a, a round of the grounds. AP, good morning. Yeah, thank you very much for that, chat. Don't tell him it's morning. <laughs> he doesn't even. <laughs> He'll go back to bed. <laughs> it is, it's morning somewhere in the world, according to him. Uh, Lola, uh, how are you feeling today? I'm fine, thank you. Lola, are you all coded up and ready to roll? What's in fact, Lola? I'm listening. Play me a song. What sort of mood are you in today, Lola? Sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Driving the big red bus that we call the Mojo Radio Show. Robbo behind the panel. How are you going? I'm going very well, mate. I've also got a quick shout out to a super fan, uh, Jason Spall. Spallsy. Spallsy. Was it, uh, it's got to be close to 12 months ago we went to WeWork and had dinner and all that sort of stuff, wasn't it? Big Jace. Yeah, the big Jace. Tell you what, can put away a steak just quietly. And let me show you this. This was my, this was my happy birthday present from Spallsy. <laughs> So for those who can't see on the podcast, Matt, funnily enough, it's a... It's a, yeah, a, that, it's a that's good radio, mate. You must be a professional. Worked in radio long? It's a gif of a guy stacking Tim Tams, which I thought was hilarious, which made me laugh. Um, and I, But just as... Great radio. As an aside, I said, thanks very much. How are you? And this is how Jason responded. Have a listen to this. Thanks, mate. I'm great. Still love the Mojo Radio Show. It's a great way to start the week. You and Gary get the best guests of any podcast. You guys survived the cut. I was driving about a thousand Ks a week and following about nine podcasts. Now it's you guys and two others. I never miss getting my mojo. Keep up the great work, and maybe Gary's call sign could be Boots. Well, like Dora the Explorer Boots. Yes, something like that. <laughs> no, I think he's referring to your gum boots. But he's clearly been listening to the show because he's done a bit of a Bruce Lee. He's got rid of the unessentials. Nice. Could it be cowboy boots and not gum boots? <laughs> 
Is that a stretch? Disposal? The Mojo Radio Show. Now, going back a few months ago, I read a book called Legacy. And it is a book I think I've mentioned before on the show for those who are our super fans who've been on the road with us in the big red bus. But I've got to say, it's a book I highly, highly recommend. It's, in fact, I think it's probably one of my top 10 books for the last couple of years. And in this show, you're going to hear why. Now, Legacy is a book that goes deep into the heart of the world's most successful sporting team, the legendary All Blacks of New Zealand. It's a rugby team that have won, they've got an 80% winning record over 100 years. It's absolutely extraordinary. Our guest this week is the author of that book, James Kerr. It's a best-selling book. He's also a speaker and a business consultant, and he goes into companies and helps deliver change and design performance processes for leaders of world-class teams and organisations. His book gives us the 15 leadership lessons he got from the All Blacks because he actually went behind the curtain. He went and camped out with the All Blacks and took out the best lessons, put it into Legacy, the book. He works with actually the big end of town. He works with banks like HSBC and brands like Boeing, Raffles, UBS, Shell. And he's also worked with Adidas. And get this, he's worked with the Australian Kangaroos. As in the rugby league team? Is that what you mean? Wow. Yeah. So he's worked with sporting teams. Maybe he could work with the Wallabies, Matt. What do you think? (laughs) They could do with all the help they can get. So yes, please. Would that be a conflict of interest? Uh, Who cares? (laughs) (laughs) James, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show, mate. Thanks, Gary. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. I have to say, uh, of all the authors that we've had in the last six seasons, I'm particularly interested in talking to you because your book, Legacy, is one of the books that I recommend every time I do a corporate speaking engagement as a book full of gold from one of the world's greatest teams. I'll get to that in a second, but when people walk up to you today, James, say, what do you do? How do you like to reply? Oh, <laughs> well, that depends who's walking up to me, I guess. But they, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, you know, I'm a, I'm a writer, speaker, and consultant coach. I guess I, I work with high-performing teams, you know, and the leaders, particularly of specifically of high-performing teams, in terms of, you know, creating culture and an environment of high performance uh, through identity, belief, belongings, mindset, kind of all of that good stuff. And I, you know, I work across. I'm really interested in multiple domains. You know, I'm, I'm interested in what what the sort of transferable principles are between, say, sport, military, business, education, government, you know, and so on, and and life. I think uh, in terms of the the, the learnings, the, the the universal truths, I guess that uh, that apply to, to 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 creating to creating an environment in which people can be their best. Um, so I don't know if that's a long answer to a short question, but uh, <laughs> but, but I'm sort of in that zone. James, the the book Legacy is an incredible read for any any business leader or person wanting to be better in and out of work because it goes behind the curtain of arguably the world's greatest sports team, a successful sports team, the All Blacks. Just just put us in the picture. How good are the All Blacks? Uh, well, phenomenally good. I think they're an outlier. They're, they, you know, they're. I think almost inarguably, you know, the most dominant team in their sport ever. You know, their stats are unbelievable. They've they've played for about 125 years on the global stage. Um, 
I think their win ratio at the moment is something around about 79%, nearly 80% of all encounters. Um, they've only lost at home, I think it's right to say, 40 times in 125 years. They've scored twice as many points. Four is against, been ranked world number one for twice as long as the rest of the world combined. You know, Wales, one of the great teams, you know, JJ, JPR, Gareth Edwards, all of those guys never beat the All Blacks in a Welsh shirt. Wales last beat them back in 1956. Um, three times world champions, two in a row. I think it's true to say that currently they hold all the silverware, all the prizes it's possible to own in their sport. You know, they're an extraordinarily dominant team and an extraordinarily difficult domain. And, and you know, there are, there are obviously there are, have been other very, very successful teams, but I think for sheer sustained excellence and sustained success, I don't think anyone comes close. So how, do, how does one, as a writer, get inside their inner sanctum? I mean, for you, it was a childhood fantasy. Yes. For them to open the door and allow you inside, how did that happen? And but I guess I'm curious about, were you truly welcomed in there? Um, I, I went, I first uh, engaged with the All Blacks for a book called Mana. I've done two books about the All Blacks. And the first book was called Mana, uh, which in, in Maori uh, mythology and Pacifica language uh, kind of means the spirit inside. And our aim was to kind of capture the spirit of the team, the ethos, the characteristic spirit of the team. Uh, in black and white photography, I worked with a, with a photographer called Nick Danziger, uh, uh, an ex- exceptional photographer. And, and we approached the team. It took four years to to get the timing right uh, and to do it. Uh, and we went in and, you know, I think we did a, a pretty good job. And from that, you know, I had some relationships. Um, and, uh, you know, there was a little bit of mission creep um, from, from that point of view. But it was that, – that, that gave me the insight and the relationships uh, to do it. So it was, a, 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 you know, an organic uh, evolution, I think, of an original idea. And um, that actually started, funnily enough, with the – in 1990 with the Australian Rugby League team. Uh, I did a very, very similar book uh, with the Kangaroos, the sort of Mel Meninga, Bobby Fulton era of the Kangaroos and uh, and apply that to the All Blacks. So, you know, it was a lot of patience and a lot of persistence uh, and the building of relationships, I think, is, is how, how it happened. You spoke at the head of the show about the work you do around leadership and one of the things you talked about in the book was authentic leadership. Can you give me an example of who who within the All Blacks or how within the All Blacks that authentic leadership presents itself? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think I think the best example I I think uh, of authentic leadership and possibly leadership per se is the great Richie McCaw. You know, he's the same guy you meet behind the scenes as front of house, and and you know, I think I think deep in, in the idea of of authenticity is is the idea of integrity, but not integrity as a sort of a moral dimension. Integrity is sort of an integrated whole. You know, who I am is what I say is what I do. You know, I am my word. I, I, I say what I will do and I do what I, I say. And that kind of sense of self-knowledge, I think, and and being kind of self-acceptance, um, uh, I think is an incredible strength. I think, I think Richie personified that and you can tell in the sort of the, humble, hard-working kind of, kind of nature of the way he presents externally is very much the way he kind of plays, I guess, although there might be a few people, a few referees who, who might doubt that. But the, the, um, um, and so that, that sort of sense of, you know, it's really interesting when you look at the idea of charisma. 
And charisma is really generated by presence. And presence can be very much, uh, you know, created by being authentically there, by, by being present to yourself and present in the world. And I think that sort of sense of sort of inner, quiet inner confidence and and standing your ground, you know, in many ways understanding your core values, knowing what you stand for and you know what you don't, um, I think is very, very powerful. And, and Richie personifies that. There's a fantastic story about Richie. Um, when he was 15, he was asked what he wanted to do with his life, and he said he wanted to be an all-black. And his uncle, who, who'd asked the question, said, well, that's brilliant. Everyone wants to be an all-black. What are you going to do about it? Write it down. And he, he kind of wrote the steps, you know, from school first for 15 up to, you know, all-black's captain. Uh, and his uncle kind of said, you know, is that it? Is that the limit of your ambition? Surely you want to be more than that. Surely you want to be a great all-black. And Richie couldn't bring himself to write Great All Black now, and so he wrote G-A-B and he, uh, at the top of the page, standing for Great All Black. And he used to ask himself, you know, what would a Great All Black do? Um, and, you know, it's a brilliant question on a rainy Thursday when you don't want to go to training. Well, a Great All Black would train. Um, and, and, of course, it came to a head in 2007 when the All Blacks were knocked out of the Rugby World Cup in the quarterfinal stage and the knives were out for Richie as the captain. And... Um, he asked himself, what would a great All Black do? And, of course, he decided he wasn't a great All Black by that point. So he re-signed for, the, for, for New Zealand rugby and led the All Blacks to the 2011 World Cup victory and the 2014, um, 2015 World Cup victory. And, you know, indisputably, he is the great All Black, I would say. You know, I think him or Colin Meads, I'd sort of go, Col uh, I, I would go Richie. Now and and I think that came from a deep self knowledge of what he stood for and what he where he wanted to go. Um, I mean, you'd have to ask him clearly, you know, his core motivations. But my reading of it is, you know, he's he's a he's a remarkable man with a clear understanding of himself and what's important for him, and then he leads by example. I think, and that sort of idea of authentic leadership. That's not just about leading a team to extract what you want out of them. It's kind of leading a life in the way that you believe it is right to lead it. And you tend to attract the right people around you if, if, if you take that stance, I think. Richie kept a notebook which you wrote about. And I've yep. in, in his book, The Real McCall, he also talks about it, which I'll get to in a second. From your observations, how did he use that notebook? Um, well, again, again, you know, there's quite a bit been written about it. I think I think about uh, my again. My my take on it is that it's, it's kind of grounding. You know, it's about reminding himself of what's required. Um, you know, if you rate, if if you ask yourself, what would a great All Black do at the beginning of every day, or what would a great CEO do, or what would a great entrepreneur do, or what would a great writer or radio presenter do, um, then you're you're kind of priming yourself for. For, for success. If you don't, you wake up, the phone goes, you check out Facebook, see what's on, on Twitter, listen to the radio on the way in and, and, and really not connect with yourself, you know, on your way to work, for instance, you know, you're not really focused on, on your own greatness, I would say. Um, and I think the, 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 the practice of, of, of notebooking and journaling, and there's, you know, there's obviously been a lot written about it is, is one really of focusing on the fundamentals of coming down to what, uh, you know, what do I stand for? What won't I stand for? What am I trying to achieve today? How am I going to achieve it? So there's a very kind of grounding and I think kind of neurological priming. You know, if, if you're bringing that language in, if you're really 
diving into who am I and what do I want to do every day, that sense of uh, self-development that follows from that is, is, is very powerful and very effective. You know, there's a lot... You know, I think there's a lot of stigma out in the in the outside world about personal development. You know, one of the things that occurs to me in all the great teams I've worked with, and I've had the privilege of working with with some of the greatest, from you know Manchester City to Liverpool Football Club to to um, you know the U.S. Navy SEALs, um, is that there is nobody is ashamed of personal development within that. Uh, within those zones. It is all about personal development. It is all about getting better every day. In fact, the Navy SEALs have a fantastic line. They say they're looking for expert learners. And, you know, what better, you know, one of the ways that we learn is by reflection. It's one of the key stages stages of learning. And I think uh, Richie keeping a notebook or anyone keeping a notebook and any kind of morning ritual that is around connecting with your your deeper values and your true purpose, your kind of true north, is the beginning of a a kind of a a personal learning environment, if you like. Um, The ability to kind of identify, to, to, you know, it's the oldest phrase of them all, know thyself. Um, to know thyself and to understand what's required to kind of execute, uh, as they say in sport, on the paddock under pressure. Earlier in the show, James, you mentioned core values and just now you mentioned what do I stand for and something in the book that Richie also talks about is the Crusaders who are a phenomenal club team franchise out of New Zealand who on the world stage are also super successful. In the dressing room, they have what they call the Corinthian columns. Can you just describe that? What are the Corinthian columns? What is it, and how do they use it? Well, well, really, the you know, there's an old there's an old um, framework, uh, kind of a that's like a, a an identity house or a value house. And if you you, th- you think about it, there are different ways of looking at it. The the, the Crusaders did it in a particular way, but other organisations have done it similarly. You know, if you imagine a Kind of the Parthenon, you know, it has a has a foundation and it has pillars and it has a roof, you know, a peaked roof. On that peaked roof, you might put in what it is you you know where do you want to go, what do you want to become. Um, the pillars are your performance pillars, the behaviours or the the focus that you need to, to to or the areas you need to focus on to become that. And underneath there are sort of some, some some foundational values. And the Crusaders, I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what the words are. Actually, it's been a while. But um, but I know Richie uh, said, and I think he talks about it in his book that that when something's going wrong off the field, he would come in and have a look at these columns and go and identify. And it was always that there was something that wasn't fundamental to that organization or to that culture that wasn't being focused on or adhered to that was leading to problems off the field, uh, on the field. So that relationship between what we do off the field and what we do on the field is, is fundamental. And, you know, in, in rugby, like, as in life, you know, most of the time we're not actually performing. You know, we're living or we're preparing. And so, you know, let's say 95% of the time we're not actually doing our job. We're not act- So that 95% of our time is a fantastically powerful um preparatory phase and you know what we do off the field impacts what we do on um a phrase i really like is is from buddha and he just says you know the way we do one thing is the way we do everything you know the way we do one thing is the way we do everything so by focusing on those core corinthian values if you like uh off the field in terms of everything that we do 
when it comes to the crunch, when the pressure is on, when when people are relying on on, on us, when we need to make difficult decisions under pressure, uh, we're better prepared. You know, we primed ourselves. We put ourselves in a position to make those kind of decisions, and that was very much the uh, the the process uh, at the Crusaders. And I, I, you know, if I can just sort of uh, wrap it on for a moment, you know, the, the Crusaders is a fantastically interesting case study in the impact of of identity around belief and belonging. When 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 the franchise system and the super series started, um, the Crusaders were sort of mid table, if that, I think. Uh, and, and really, they were quite an unpopular team locally. Um, they, they, they combined a whole lot of provinces that didn't really belong together, traditional foe. Um, somebody told me the story about how they used to go to the, the, um, the warm-up or, or, or go to Crusaders games, and they'd, they'd leave before that. They'd go there for a drink and watch the warm-up games, the, the curtain raises, but they'd leave before the Crusaders played as a sort of show of disgust. So they weren't popular, and they and the players inside were going, "Well, what are we playing for? Why does this matter?" You know, and and purpose is incredibly important for any sort of performance. Wayne Smith uh, had had joined the team as the head coach in its second season, and he went through a a process where he started to and with you know brought the team in in terms of asking them what what does a good Crusader man look like. You know, what are our values? What are our beliefs and behaviors? What are the standards and expectations? Who are we? And, you know, what is our story? And they created a story around, you know, the Shakespeare, um, the speech from Henry the, the, the speech from Henry, Henry V, he who sheds his blood with me today will be my brother. You know, this brotherhood, this brotherhood that's around certain values and beliefs and behaviors. And, you know, the extraordinary thing about, the Crusaders is that was, you know, I think the platform, well, I think over the next 10 years, I think they won six or seven of the next tournaments, something like that. I need to check my stats. They are, you know, I think probably the second greatest team in rugby after the All Blacks. And, and in fact, a lot of the, the a lot of the, um, the values basis and the, and the individuals uh, in the current and reasonably recent All Blacks setup came out of that Crusaders Outfit, uh, Wayne Smith being one of them, but Richie, um, Steve Hansen was there, the, the current All Blacks coach, and, and so on and so forth. So it was a tremendously important piece of work. It's sort of a, a, a beginning stage of a team. And I think, you know, for your listeners, if anyone's starting a business or taking their business to the next level, focusing in on on the why, the, the, the who, the what, the why, all of those fundamental identity questions, you know, what do we stand for and what won't we? Our, our, our fundamental values. You know, where are we going? You know, what is our what is our vision for ourselves in six months' time, and five years' time, and ten years' time? What does what does success look like? And and what is our purpose here? You know, why does it matter? What value are we creating for people? And if you can answer those questions and shape a culture around it, it's like I always sort of joke. It's like building the Starship Enterprise. You don't know what galaxy you're going to end up in but you've got a pretty strong ship when you get there. You mentioned the word identity then, James, and I'm curious. We've, we've had a bit of a thread through the show for the last probably year around identity, and I'm just curious, do you think the team, the, the players, the support team, the coaches, do you think they actually channel a war god as kind of an identity when they wear the jersey to go to battle? Do you think... Do you think that actually is something the All Blacks do take on to the playing field? 
I, I, I'm not sure explicitly, but I think absolutely. You know, of course, they we talked about morning rituals uh, before. You know, if you think about pre-game rituals, the haka uh, is an extraordinary ritual and embodiment of the belief system of that team, if you like. And you know, the haka is about connection. It's about being connected to the indrawn breath. It's about being connected to the whenua, to the land, and our ancestors, all those who have come before us, um, who are buried in that soil. You know, the the great players in the past. If you look at an All Blacks uh, area, you know, it's about being connected to self, that authenticity, that presence thing uh, that I that I spoke of. It's about being connected to each other. It's about cohesion as a team, and it's about being connected to to purpose. Um, the idea that the All Blacks live with that, that, you know, the core idea really is about legacy. It's about leaving the jersey in a better place. Every time somebody pulls on a black jersey, they have an opportunity to, to, to enhance the legacy. And so I think being connected to that sense of identity about what it means to be an All Black, you know, what it means, in, in many ways, what it means to be alive, you know, the, 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 the haka is based on that, that fantastic work, Papa. you know, that idea of that long lineage of, of people stretching from the beginning of time to the end of eternity. And we're all linked arm in arm. And the sun shines for a moment, but just for a moment on, on this time, on our time. And it reminds us that we have a fleeting moment to make our mark and write our chapter and, and fulfill our promise and, 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 and our purpose and, and to be a good ancestor, if you like, and to, and to add to the legacy or to leave the jersey in a better place. And that's a tremendously primal, I think, identity about, um, uh, about humans, uh, it, 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 uh, about parenthood and fatherhood and, and legacy and all of that. And so I think that sense of what it means to be an All Black, that identity, of what it means to the All Black, it's kind of the glue and the oil in the in the heart of the of that team and of of, of that culture, you know, because they've they've had the sort of eighty percent roughly win ratio over one hundred and twenty five years, but of course it's not the same people, you know. So what does hold that together? It's not that the only thing that really holds it together is the jersey and what it means. Um, but sure, there are systems and structures in place and coaching and competition and, and the sort of the, the, the talent pathways within New Zealand and all of that, that that helps lead to that. But within the team itself, um, that identity, that sense of belief and belonging about what it means to be an All Black, not to let your mates down, not to let the legacy down, to embrace the expectation of what it means to pull on a black jersey, that's tremendously powerful. And I think, it, as I say, is the glue and the oil that holds this tremendously successful outfit together. James, if I take you back to your own connections and your own ancestors, during the course of this project, you actually lost your own grandmother and your father. I did, yes. And yes. your city of Christchurch, as we saw worldwide, was destroyed through a brutal earthquake. That all happened through this, pro- this project of you writing a book called Legacy. When you hear the haka and you think about your own connection, your own ancestors, generations past, generations in the future... When you hear it, what do you think of? What what emotions does it stir inside James Kerr? Wow, that's a fantastic question. That's a fantastic question. I, I'm 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 almost tearing up here. Um, I, I, the other thing that happened over that time is is uh, my two roughly my, well my two children were born. So that idea of legacy and lineage and ancestry and leaving the jersey in a better place and doing that thing that we can do with our time in the sun for me was was really present, I think, um, as an idea, and it, and it deeply moved me. And I, I, I think 
And I hope I sort of transmitted that into the book. It was a very personal book in that sense. Um, uh, although it's a, it's although it's sort of a, a book about leading an organisation or a team, I think it's very much a book about leading a life. You know, what are the important things in life? Um, so when I see the haka, I am, uh, I there's a tremendous there's some tremendous emotions. I think for any New Zealander, it's almost the 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 primal memory I think of most New Zealanders. You know, sitting, you know, with our dad at three o'clock in the morning watching these black-clad warriors on a black-and-white television taking on the world and win, and beginning with a haka, you know, there's tremendous pride there. There's a tremendous sense of, of this is us, you know, uh, of, of unity and, and connection. Um, and for me, of course, there's the sort of the idea of, well, who do I represent? Or what, you know, what is my lineage? You know, where do I come from? Who am I representing? And my grandmother has been a particularly powerful presence in my life. She, she died at 92 for her 90th birthday. She had a, had a birthday party with hundreds of her best friends. She was amazing, uh, a connector, uh, and tremendously, um, influential. I think she had 14 grandchildren and I, I, the joke in our family is that we were all her favorites. Um, so, so her sense of love and her sense of care and her, and, uh, and she had a tremendous, she had a motto, uh, which was, uh, be useful. And, uh, you know, I, I think now in the past, you know, maybe it was just um, it, what she was really saying is go outside and make yourself useful, but I'm not quite sure, but but be useful. And I think that as a motto, that's it's a make a contribution, you know, find something that you can, that, that you can help other people with, um, that, that you can make a difference in other lives is a fantastically powerful way of looking at life, being grateful for the opportunities you've got and realizing that it's not all about you. It's about what you, what you, uh, contribute to those around you that will define their lives, uh, define your life and, and create a successful life. And so I guess I've taken that philosopher philosophy in and, um, you know, just a story I think that, that kind of, um, reiterates that if you like is, is is what happens when an all black becomes an all black? They, they're asked two questions, and they're brilliant, brilliant questions. The questions are, you know, uh, you know, what will you contribute to this team? You know, what will your contribution be to this team? And what are you prepared to sacrifice? What are you prepared to, you know, give up for what you for what you're able to? You know, can you give up something of yourself for what you want to become? And I think they're two fantastic questions for any life, actually. You know, what is it that you're here to give? What is your talent? Um, what is that, as the Japanese say, what's that intersection between, you know, what you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what they're prepared to pay for? If you can find that sweet spot and be useful to other human beings in that area, um, successful followers, as Bill Walsh from the 49, San Francisco 49ers used to say, you know, the score will take care of itself. And and I just, for me, it's a fantastic um life philosophy and it's something I see reflected in within the All Blacks, within all great teams who, you know, the All Blacks say no one is bigger than the jersey. You know, it's it's about leaving the jersey in a better place. It's, your, it's, it's that relationship between autonomy and interdependence, between freedom and responsibility, between what I get out of it and what I can give that I think becomes the the key kind of cultural point for any great team. And if you get that right, that sense that you get all the discretionary effort, you get the love and the brotherhood and the, or sisterhood or, or whatever in that area that, that, 
that leads to a situation in which the school will take care of itself. You've created that starship enterprise, if you like. I just want to tie a few things together with that gold that you just dropped here, James. You said no one is bigger than the jersey. And something I found really curious in the book was the tribal tapuna or the totem was intentionally in Maori culture, made grotesque because it always displayed yeah. humility. And I'd never seen that or knew that. I just, I always thought it was odd, but I never understood why. And then, of course, at the end of the haka, they do that same grotesque face. And the whole thing is rooted in the history of the people, that humility is a part of the Maori New Zealand culture. And it just seems that hearing you talk about no one is bigger than the jersey, you talked about Richie one of the former great all-black captains, and then some of the organisations you've worked with, is humility an essential cornerstone of leadership and building a culture in your mind? Although every leader is different, I get that, but is, is it kind of a, a core thread? How, how important is humility? Well, well, I think, uh, I think very, I think vital. And I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that... You know, the All Blacks talk about humility or that the, say, the British SAS, the, you know, the Special Air Service, you know, the most elite, perhaps, of the elite in terms of fighting forces within their ethos, they talk about humility and a sense of humor. Um, or that, or that um, the, the U.S. Navy SEALs, their trident, their, their badge is the only insignia in the U.S. military that the American Eagle has its head bowed. In humility, because you know, in special forces, in the rug, on a rugby field, and you know, in life, if you get ahead of yourself, if you think you're special, you know, you get shot. Um, you know, it's one of the oldest lessons from the ancients, isn't it? Hubris, the Achilles heel, the idea that Achilles, this good-looking Brad Pitt-looking character, he Brad Pitt played him in in the film, whose mother dipped him in the river uh, of immortality, and he thought, "I'm immortal. No one can get me." Uh, and of course, he, of course, like everybody, he had, a, he had his weakness. So he had the, mo- the the point that his mother held his heel, um, and and he was shot in his Achilles heel and 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 died because you know if you're arrogant, if you think no one can get you, if you think you're better than everyone else, you're not, and you'll get found out pretty quickly. So in a way, although it's the softest word uh, within the kind of that All Blacks environment or the SAS environment or the Navy SEALs environment, in many ways it it creates a huge amount of strength. Because it comes back to you know one of the one of the core enemies of high performance is is entitlement, you know is is unearned glory. You know somehow I deserve it. Somehow the world owes me this. Um, uh, but of course, humility means the world owes you nothing. Humility means that your ego is sort of an enemy. You know, it gets in the way of, of clear decision making and and the effort that you put in and and so on and so forth. So. Yes, I, I, I think, and you know, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a big difference between kind of humility and meekness. I think humility enables a strength, a sort of an inner strength, a confidence that I can, you know, if somebody knows more than me, I'm okay with them um, telling me. You know, I have that confidence to be humble. Uh, around other people and in that way you can you don't have to be the to be a leader you don't need to be the smartest person in the room you just need to lead the smartest people in the room um and so that that combination of sort of humility and confidence i think is is hugely important there's a brilliant story dan carter the former playmaker for the all blacks highest scoring rugby player of of all time 
um, uh, told told me he 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 um, he I think in in his sort of early twenties he had starred against the, the British Lions and I think he'd been named International Player of the Year once maybe twice at that point um, and uh, he was a practice there was sort of a practice week. And one of the, the 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 chief executive of New Zealand Rugby would come down and and look at practice, and he'd come up to Dan and he'd kick his foot. And Dan, being twenty three, and this guy was the boss, didn't really want to ask him why, didn't want to give him any 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 jib. So he let it go. The, the next day, you know, the same guy comes back and kicks Dan on on the other foot, and Dan's going, you know, what's going on here? But he didn't want to say anything. Third day. Um, this guy comes down, kicks him on the foot again, and Dan finally says, "Mate, what's all this about?" Uh, and the and the NZ Rugby guy goes, the CEO goes, "Look, mate, I'm just making sure you've still got your feet on the ground." So, top to bottom, and within that organisation, top to bottom within that organisation was the idea that you know, if you stay humble, you stay hungry. Don't get ahead of yourself. Don't think you're special because you know you take your eye off the ball, you start to you start to think that actually the parties are more important than practice. You start to think that you know that that, that you start to believe the hype, and as soon as you start to believe the hype, you kind of lost as an individual. You know, I think it's one of the the issues that leaders face today in in business is that is that we have social media kind of makes everyone a rock and roll star. You know, we're more famous you know, through Facebook or Twitter or whatever than we ever had the opportunity to be 20 years ago. Um, and and so that sense that, that I must be pretty special because I've got X amount of followers or I've got a dopamine charge with lots of likes is a, con- you know, within that kind of constant sense of entitlement and people talk about millennials, if you like, as an entitled generation, not entirely sure that's completely true, but 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 finding, um, finding a sort of an antidote to, to entitlement, a sort of a humble, grateful approach to the opportunity that you have is a certainly on a personal level is a fantastically powerful way to 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 learn to get better every day, to not let entitlement get in the way and ego get in the way of 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 um, a personal performance. To be a decent, humble human being means you're better connected to other people. Um, uh, to be humble means you can be confident and you can listen. You can surround yourself with people who are more talented in different areas. Uh, than yourself, it's a tremendously powerful place to stand. I think, you know, you know these guys aren't Boy Scouts. The SAS and they're they're not doing it um, to be nice. They're doing it because it gives them a competitive edge. And I think that's something that all leaders can can look at and think about. James, the book starts at the dressing room, and I think it was at Twickenham, if my memory serves me correctly. And they uh, it, wasn't, well, it wasn't Twickenham. It was uh, it was actually in New Zealand. It was in. Um, the last test at Carisbrook uh, uh, in Dunedin, but but yes. The, the team had won. They closed yep. the door. Then they go through their own debrief. Now, they'd won the game, but they still debriefed. Yep. It's an area I'm really curious yep. about to hear your thoughts on. We had a, a former elite jet fighter pilot uh, on the show just recently, uh, Boo, and he talked about the debrief process in the Air Force, which I loved. And it just seems to me that in business and life today, something happens we're, we're all about the what's next. Your book starts with this debrief, and this is something the All Blacks, in my mind, having read the book, seem very good at. How do they do that? What's their process, win, lose, or draw? What's their process after a game? Um, listen, I, I, I think it, your point that business is not very good at that is spot on. You know, you know, we tend to be, 
you know, the wind, the windshield is bigger than our rear view mirror. So we keep looking out the windshield at what's next. You know, we go to a meeting and we jump in a taxi and we're off to the next one. You know, we're always on the, on the way forward. But of course, learning comes from reflection. You know, it comes from stopping, looking back, understanding what happened, um, look, putting in place strategies to improve for the next time. You know, it's the beginning of learning. And, and sports teams, military teams are fantastically good at that because it's a, matter, it's a matter of life and death, the next encounter in one way or another, or sporting life and death in sport and something more serious perhaps in the military. And so, you know, again, if we just compare the All Blacks with a special force unit, the, the form, in answer to your question, how do they do it, the form is exactly the same as the British SAS do. And the British SAS call it a Chinese parliament, you know, with typical political incorrectness, but a Chinese parliament, um, you know, everybody has their say, everybody is expected to have their say. Um, and this does two things. It, it creates a multiplicity of points of view, you know, a game of rugby or a skirmish at, 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 on operations in the military, you know, looks very different depending on where you're standing and the same in business, you know, um, a retail problem looks very, very different when you're at the front cash-out desk as it does back in a boardroom somewhere else. So so it's the beginning of learning. It creates a multiplicity. You know, more heads are better than one. And so the the team and and the, the SF operators will go around and everybody has their say, kind of from the most junior to the most senior, roughly, um, uh, so that you get that kind of sense of, of, of every angle. But so, so that's really important. But even more important, I think, is, is, is what that creates within a team. You know, the, the determinant of a great team is cohesion, you know, is togetherness, is the, are the bonds and the, and the attachment to that sense of the, the unit. Um, Wayne Smith has a, a fantastic quote. Uh, I, it's, it's not in Legacy, the book. I, I, it was in another book that I read after that. Uh, but he just says... Um, People will rise to a challenge. Wayne Smith, a former All Blacks coach and the Crusaders coach I talked about. Um, uh, he just says, people will rise to a challenge if it's their challenge. Now, if you're going around a room and you're getting people to lend their voice, if you're listening and recognizing their contribution, you're making that first step to creating the kind of connection and the contribution uh, and the cohesion that great teams require. Um, the All Blacks talk about a CEO in every position, you know, leadership at every level. And, and, and the question is, how do you create leadership at every level? You know, how do you, how do you encourage it? How do you literally empower people? Now, empowerment's got a slightly dodgy, pink and fluffy reputation in business. But of course, in, in the military, they call it mission command. It's the fundamental leadership uh, doctrine within the military. It's the, 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 the leaders are in charge, the senior, if you like, uh, the, the officers in charge of the, the what and the why, the end game, what's called the commander's intent. But the subordinates are in charge of the how. You know, how do we do that? Uh, now, that's tremendously empowerment, uh, empowering. It's about handing responsibility down the line. Now, the most basic way a leader can create empowerment, can hand that responsibility down the line is to ask questions. What do you think? You know, what do you think we should do? What happened in that situation? And effectively, that debrief after a game is a microcosm of that philosophy. You know, what do you think? You know, what's going on? Everybody has a voice. And, you know, there's a lot written about employee voice now um, or student voice in education. Um, really, it's kind of that in action. 
you know how you know what do you think what's going on and and the benefit of that kind of interrogative sort of socratic approach if you like of asking questions rather than issuing statements is that you get that sense of connection and that sense of uh, belonging and the validation and, and and the recognition of your people you also get great ideas out of it um, but it also allows the, the the person who's answering that question to to really process it, to take it on board. There's a real difference when somebody says, hey, in that situation, what do you think you should do? And somebody answers it and finds the answer for themselves than just being told, hey, mate, when that happens again, you've got to run for the corner or whatever it is. Um, um, so it's a tremendously, you know, philosophically that idea of, Tom Peters said it very well. He said, you know, leaders don't create followers, they create leaders. They create other leaders. You know, what we want to do, and, you know, I call it the coach CEO. You know, the idea, you know, a lot of a lot of the time we learn the idea of leadership by watching somebody bossing, you know, telling people what to do, and that becomes some sort of paradigm of leadership. And, of course, it's not a very effective one because if, if anyone went to school and they had an autocratic headmaster, you know, they're the schools that people are smoking in the bike sheds. They're disengaged. You know that that's a that's a that's a, a monopoly on fear, and that fear doesn't motivate for very long. But intrinsic motivation comes from within. You know, you can't motivate people. You can create the opportunity in which people can self-motivate. Um, so, by being a kind of a coach CEO, if you like, by being a resource to bring out the best in your people, ask them what they feel uh, and what they think, and what their solution might be. What you're doing is you're creating a huge degree of contribution and belief and recognition and belonging, and that from that you create the kind of the clarity and the cohesion that you need in a team. So, I think we can learn a lot uh, from that. And again, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that the teams that, are, that, that fight closest to the fire, whether they're sports teams or jet fighter pilots or um, uh, oil rig workers or, or firefighters um, or special force oper- operators, you know, they're the ones that, they, that have the debrief uh, as really critical in their processes because unless you're getting better every day, you get shot. It's interesting, you know, that after a loss in business or whatever, we tend to write it off and move on to the next thing. Yet another great leader, former captain of the All Blacks, Sean Fitzpatrick, after a loss, he closed the door and he asked the team to sit in the loss for a minute. He said, feel feel what it feels like to lose. And it's something that you don't hear in the corporate world at all. We lose business, we lose something, we move on. Why do you think Sean Fitzpatrick, why is it important, do you think, as a part of the debrief is to sit in a loss and feel what it feels like? I mean, I mean Fitz is very much a champion, I think, of, uh, of you know, that fear of failure is a huge driver. Um, so by embracing that fear... Uh, that understanding, you know, I don't want to let my country down. I don't want to let my teammates down. I don't want to let the jersey down. Is is tremendously powerful um, driver of performance. Of course, you need to get that balance right because you don't want to be playing in fear. You know, you want to be playing free and being able to express yourself. And so, so getting that balance right is really important. Um, but you know, success isn't a great teacher. You know, it's a, it's almost a cliche. Success isn't a great teacher. If you keep on doing things well, you you know. Well, that's brilliant, you know, and and you look at an organization like Nokia, for instance, you know, Nokia totally dominated the the mobile phone market 
thought it was in, you know, it, it, it had that kind of Achilles heel. It thought, well, we're so dominant in this market. Our ringtone is the most recorded and played tune in the world. And of course, so they dominated the mobile phone market, but then the smartphone market started and they were behind, right? They never learned. They never had to learn. Success was a terrible teacher for them. Um, so I think embracing, really understanding where things went wrong, that after, what the military would call an after-action review, um, is vital and something that, 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 you know, I encourage the business teams I work with, the, the sort of CEO networks I work with or, or individuals or, or teams or sports teams I work with, but, but particularly in business because it's a missing, is, is when, when do you actually put this improvement in the diary? You know, when does it actually take up time and resource within your day or within your week or within your month? What time do you devote as a team to learning how to get better, both, you know, and primarily from your failures? If you've got a business pitch, as you say, people go, well, well, let's just ignore that. We'll go on to the next one. But really sitting down and going, right, what happened there? How could have we done better? You know, it might only take an hour. But it's going to save you weeks and weeks and weeks uh, next time you go for the for, for a pitch because you've got better at it. And you're going, well, we're not going to make that same mistake. You know, a lot of organizations make the same mistake over and over again. Um, and it, it's not necessarily easy. I, I didn't hear your jet fighter pilot uh, interview, but, but one thing I know about the Red Arrows, um, the, the display team, um, I interviewed a bunch of them, um, is that when they debrief, they maintain their flight numbers. You know, they, they don't do it by name. They don't make it personal. It's purely professional. Uh, and maintaining that, prof the All Blacks say, stab me in the belly, not the back. Tell me what I need to know to get better. You know, don't, don't bitch about me behind my back. There's nothing I can do about that. I need to know uh, how I can improve. Uh, but, but you need to create psychological safety within any space to have those kind of debriefs. Um, uh, and I think it's something that 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 you know maybe we're afraid of in business because you know if you're pointing you know it becomes a blame game. Um, I think shifting it from being a blame game to the idea that listen we're all going to make mistakes. Um, things aren't going to go right. Um, making mistakes is a necessary step to getting better to learning. Uh, how do we create a safe learning environment? Or what what can we put into place to make it safe? You know if if you go. Flight number three six one. You're flying a bad line. It's 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 a little bit different than Gary. You're screwing up, you know. Um, and and uh, you know, in in many different environments, the same sort of thing happens. Um, the All Blacks uh, have or had a thing where they just said permission to enter the danger. You know, if you hear that, you know you're about to hear something you don't really like. But you've got a moment to take that on board, and then to welcome it in. You have permission granted. Some of those simple interpersonal um, dialogues, structured dialogues, can be very, very powerful uh, as a way of depersonalizing what, what can be taken very personally and creating psychological safety, which then enhances cohesion rather than diminishes it and allows those difficult conversations to take place. One of, one of my lines about, you know, the, you know, great teams are the place where the, where the things that need to get said get said. The things that need to get said get said. And really the dysfunctional teams and the dysfunctional marriages or the dysfunctional relationships of any sort is when the stuff that needs to get said doesn't get said. People harbor grudges. Um, people, um, people leave. 
you know, people pe- people just depart. People take their foot off the accelerator and stop contributing so much. Um, there's there's a lack of kind of love in the centre of it, a lack of safety in the centre of it. So I think any leader is is really smart if they go well. How are we getting better today? How is it in the diary? How can we learn from the difficult stuff? And how we can learn from the difficult stuff in a safe environment that allows the stuff that needs to get said to get said? And then, you know, you can get better every, every day. And instead of failure creating disillusionment, it creates a sense of hope and possibility and improvement. And I think that's vital for any team. James, I could talk to you for four hours. I've got so much more to ask you about, but I'm, I'm very mindful of your time. A couple of quick things just to, to wrap up. You just mentioned the word arrow. What's the philosophy of the second arrow? Uh, the philosophy of the second arrow. Okay, that, that's, that's, you're asking some fantastic questions. Um, the second arrow is your response. Um, it's a Buddhist philosophy. And um, the... Um, the idea is, you know, you're going to have a primary reaction to anything get, that gets thrown at you. You know, you're going to react. You know, somebody cuts you off on a car, you're likely to go, you know, swear word, swear word, beep, beep, right? Whatever it is, right? Whatever, whatever your response is. But, but um, the, the, in terms of kind of being stoic, being Buddhist about it, you're really, maybe that initial reaction you can't control, but you can certainly control the second one, the second arrow, when that overbearing rage comes over you and you want to stomp out of the car and, you know, confront them in the middle of a highway, road rage, say, for instance. So so the second arrow is that is is the second one that comes and the second lot of hurt. And if you might, it's very, very difficult um, in terms of a mindset not to respond to aggressive stimuli. Um, but it's possible then to, to find smart ways of controlling that response or that reaction so it becomes an appropriate response. Um, in, in military terms, we talked about the Navy SEALs. The Navy SEALs use box breathing, four-square breathing, you know, in on four, hold for four, out on four, hold for four, and so on, to create a kind of a mindful space. Um, and, you know, mindfulness it gets talked about a lot in business these days, but, of course, it came from the martial arts, the fighting arts, um, because finding a quiet space, a non-reactive space, a space that you can respond rather than react, um, is, a much, is, is, a, is a kind of an optimum performance mindset. Um, uh, and, and it comes from staying present, and it, and it comes from, from being able to control your state and your emotional response rather than just express the first thing that comes that comes to you. So that's my understanding of the second arrow. And I think in terms of state change and maintaining an optimum performance state, you know, clearly an athlete and uh, you know, for athletes under pressure situations, it's fantastically important. But you know, we all find ourselves in in situations where we can, we will either react or respond, and it's the response uh, that, as as Goethe says, you know, our moods make the weather. You know, we can be either an, you know, an instrument of torture or an instrument of inspiration. We get to choose that by by having a healthy response to that second arrow. We make better choices about the way we respond. There was something just to finish up here. There was something you talked about called redhead, bluehead, and there was one piece that I loved, which was a specific tool. I'll get you to explain what redhead, bluehead is, but you said one of the players when under pressure would remove himself from the group just for a moment 
to look at the four corners of the ground in order to see the big picture. Can you just explain the philosophy behind this? Because it seems to tie into the second arrow. It, it does, very much. I, I, um, this is really the brainchild of, of a forensic psych, psych, psychologist, psychiatrist called Kerry Evans um, and Gilbert Anoka, the, the mental skills coach, um, uh, who's been with the All Blacks for a long, long period of time, one of the hugely unsung heroes, an extraordinary man. And, and they realized they needed to respond. They needed to understand the All Blacks' response to pressure. So the All Blacks had lost for, you know, effectively 20-something years of World Cups where they were going in favorites and they were being bundled out early. And, and of course, that was very much about knockout pressure. Um, so they, they, they took a look on two aspects of it. They took a look on, well, what pressure is. You know, they define pressure as a privilege. If you're not up to pressure, you're not up to enough, uh, you know, in life. It's like riding a motorbike without the wind in your hair. You want some pressure. Um, uh, it, you know, and, 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 and finding strategies for doing that. But, but also they looked at what does brain biology do under pressure, which was really Kerry Evans' work. Um, and because simplicity helps under pressure situations, they, they created a kind of a, uh, a way of looking at it. Uh, and then, again, this was very much Kerry, uh, redhead, bluehead. And the way I interpret it is, you know, redhead, it's like you're, you're driving to a meeting and you're late. If we put it in a sort of a business or a life context, you're driving to a meeting and you're late and you're this traffic and you're trying to think, which way do I go and where do I park? And, um, uh, how, how, what am I going to say? And how's it going to go? And, um, uh, we're not going to get the deal. And if we don't get the deal, we won't make our numbers. I won't get my bonus. If I don't get my bonus, I can't pay my mortgage. If I can't pay my mortgage, my cat will leave me. Right? Um, but all of that, of course, hasn't happened. You know, It's all in the future. It's future-based thinking. It's kind of a redhead. It's a consequence-based um, out-of-body experience. And, like, and, of course, if you're driving, that's when a car hits you from the side because your mind's literally not on the road. It's not present. Um, so that's redhead, you know, it's a form of choking. The opposite of that is bluehead, being clear and accurate and on task and in the moment and in the zone, the horizon opens up, time slows down, um, an optimum performance space. So the, the question is, you know, how do you recognize the red and how do you change to the, to the blue? Recognizing the red, I'd argue, is a team game. You know, it's very difficult. You want – one of my favorite lines in, in sport – is from the San Antonio Spurs, which is their kind of one of their mantras, and they just say, "How can I make my teammates better? How can you call out other people around you and support each other to to, to understand where you're at, what your state is?" Um, and secondarily, is how do you make that shift? And and as you say, the, that, that that's very much based on self knowledge, and it came down to some very simple kind of anchoring processes that the players kind of customized for their own benefit. Uh, Karen Reed, um, you know, would go into himself under pressure. He would sort of get a narrow horizon. So he would, as you say, sort of separate himself from the group for a moment and stop and look at every corner of the stadium in his own time to give himself the big picture. You know, so he would take himself out of that narrow view, give himself a bigger view, a very practical way of, of recreating, of coming back to an optimum state. Uh, Richie McCaw would, would, he, he would disassociate. Um, so he would, uh, under pressure, so he would you stamp his feet on the ground and bring himself back and ground, literally ground himself. Uh, Brad Thorne would, uh, would kind of 
you know, sorry, Brad, but might hit people, you know, would, would flash, <laughs> would flare. Sorry, Brad, if you're listening to this. Um, the, so he would throw water on himself to cool himself down. You know, simple stuff. You know, some people have a rubber band around their wrist and they flick that just to bring themselves back to the moment. Some people, you know, um, you see you see athletes, runners shaking their hands to shake out stress. You know, you know, there are many ways that we can do it, but but the the, the core process is coming back uh, to the moment, coming back to a moment that because we can only affect things in the moment. We, if we're thinking about how a meeting is going to go, you know, that doesn't help us prepare for that meeting. Right, if we're driving and we're late, much better to kind of make a call and let people know that we're late, and then sit there and rehearse the presentation. You know, then we're doing something. Then we're on task. We're not on task when we're worried about whether our cat will leave us. So it's just very simple ways of understanding that that human beings neurologically have certain state changes when pressure happens. We're not necessarily at our best, but to create our own personal space within that, in the same way as the seals use box breathing to come back to self, to come back to the moment. You know, the most modern kind of coaching philosophy in the world is really the most ancient martial arts knowledge in the world. And if you come back to your breath, if you come back to yourself, if you come back to your moment, if you're mindful, if you're present, uh, you're in an optimum um, uh, an optimum space to deal with whatever life or business or sport or, or the enemy throws at you uh, and you'll make better decisions on the paddock under pressure. James, just to wrap up our little program today, you've got two boys who are young fellas. When you, with all you know about the All Blacks, you've worked with some incredible teams like Manchester City, Liverpool, Seals. With all you know, with all you've seen, when you look in the mirror in the morning, what's the legacy that you want to leave in the mind of your boys? Oh, another brilliant question. Wow. Um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's about being true to their own values probably. You know, if I look at my boys, um, I think it's very easy as parents to, to, to have certain aspirations and dreams about what they should be and the way they should be. But really, they're going to be the best they can be if they discover who they truly are, um, what, 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 what drives them. I think the purpose and passion and talent and success are all part of that same sort of bundle. So I think, you know, what I would like to, I would like to take that coaching position uh, as a parent um, to create the space for them to self-discover, uh, to become the them that they want to be, you know, to give them some guidelines uh, and 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 to try to kind of give them some advice, but not to project myself over the top of them. And I think, you know, I, d- I don't think there's uh, anyone alive, uh, particularly of my generation, that doesn't um, ha- doesn't recognise the idea of a sort of a helicopter parent or an overbearing parent. You know, I'd rather be a coach parent. I'd rather be a resource for my kids to to discover what what truly sets them alight, um, because then they'll be happier. Uh, they'll be more satisfied and more fulfilled. But I, I believe in the long game, they'll be more successful. You know, short term, you know, um, I, my, my parents wanted me to, to be a lawyer and, um, and I went to law school for a while, but I didn't enjoy it. And I'm, the, the best decision I ever made in my life was to drop out of law school. And it wasn't an easy piece of news to break, but it was by far the best decision I made because I wanted to write. 
and I wanted to speak and I wanted to work with people and make a contribution in that area. And I think staying true to what you know of yourself and, and, and following your own path has got to be, you know, we started this conversation talking about authenticity and its power. Um, to, to, to I, you know, I would like my kids to live the most authentic life for them that they can, not because uh, out of some sort of hippie ideal, but because actually I think that's where success really lies, you know, to live life on your own terms. Uh, to me, is the ultimate definition of success. You know, I, I really love the Leonard Cohen quote. He was asked quite late in his life, um, you know, uh, what's he most proud of? And he just said, I'm most proud I've never had a job. <laughs> I've always worked for myself and I've always done my thing. And I think that's a tremendous kind of uh, uh, result. Nothing wrong with having a job if that's, you know, your choice. Uh, that's what you want. But, but he lived life on his own terms. And I would love my kids to live life on their own terms. And personally, I want to live life on my own terms as much as I practically can. So, you know, if that's a legacy... Uh, I would like that to be my own. I think it's gold. You you mentioned the term waka papa, which I think is a Maori term yep. that you mentioned earlier in the show. My understanding of that term is it's about planting trees that you'll never see. And you said to the All Blacks that you take on the jersey, you write your next part, you write the, your your chapter in the All Blacks book, but you leave it in a better place than when you took on that jersey. And I've got to say, mate, that book, Legacy, I, I can be guaranteed you are planting, helping, fostering, growing and coaching people all over the world. And I know it for a fact that people you'll never get to speak to or see, but you're planting so many trees, which is making such an impact because your work is profound based on one of the great teams. And honestly, I, I could... I could talk to you for four hours. I've got another two pages, which we haven't even gotten to yet, but I'm respectful of your time. But <laughs> thank you for taking time out to do this because it's been very special. It's just been wall-to-wall -wall gold. People will want to find the book, learn more about you. Where do you send them to? Uh, the uh, Amazon and all good bookshops, uh, I think, uh, is probably is probably my answer. It's called Legacy, um, What the All Blacks Can Teach Us About the Business of Life. 15 Lessons in Leadership. Uh, it's published by uh, Constable through Little Brown or Hachette. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, I just send people to Amazon because isn't, isn't that the easiest way these days? But uh, uh, however you want to get hold of it, you know, I appreciate every reader and, and thank you, Gary, for those thoughts. Uh, I, uh, you know, again, it's humbling and, uh, you know, it kind of, I hope, fulfills my grandmother's advice, you know, be useful. You know, I, I just hope that it's useful for people and that it, it, it stimulates. There's, 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 there's a wonderful Maori proverb, gather the good food and cast away the rubbish. And, uh, you know, I just hope that people gather the stuff that's useful for them. You know, I like to talk about leading a business, leading a team or leading a life. And, um, you know, I kind of wrote it with my life in mind, if you like. Um, as you say, a lot of things were going on for me at the time. Um, and I just hope that it's useful and that people can, you know, gather some good food, some good food for thought and, and hopefully it makes a difference uh, for them and whatever they are up to in their domain. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. I have to say, having been involved in rugby for 45 years of my 50 years on the planet, I really enjoyed that interview, but I can't let you go without giving you a joke that you may well be able to use in your next book. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> Here so, we go. So, do you know why? Do you know why Richie McCaw became a helicopter pilot? 
Uh, why is that? Because it's okay to enter from the side. <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, it seemed to be okay. It seemed to be okay to enter from the side during his career. I don't, I don't see the problem. He was a he was a master of it, wasn't he? He was a master of it. And actually, well, you know, you, you know, you, you you play the you play the ball and you play the referee, don't you? So you know, he was he was a master at it. And it's yeah. it's uh, you know, if you want to be influence a game, you've got to you know again, it's influence the people around you. I think uh, Richie was fantastically good at that. Absolutely. And in the end. In the end, the whistle counts. So uh, he, an extraordinary man, an extraordinary player. I think. Mate, I'll, I'll go to my grave torn in two about that guy. I, as as a rugby player, I love him. As an All Black, I hate his guts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, totally fair enough. But uh, uh, he's now a helicopter pilot. So um, absolutely. So so maybe it's, maybe he's a neutral, a bit more neutral now. This is Tate Fletcher, Cage Fighter. Listen to Mojo Radio Show, or I'll be coming to see you. As much as it hurt to hear you guys talking about Richie McCaw in there, you've got to say, in terms of sportsmen of any type anywhere on the planet, that guy has to rate in the top ten. Well, I'll give you another well-known fuck, Sonny Jim, about Richie McCaw. Mm. He is a guy who loves to journal. And journaling, if you read Richie's book, The Real McCaw, which I think we've made reference to during the show, here's something you take to the boys in the under-16s. Before every match, Richie McCaw former captain of the All Blacks, would sit with his open journal. He'd turn to a clean page. At the top of the page, he'd write, start again. And then he would write what he needed to do in that game in order to be a great All Black. What, what was, was going to be his focus for that particular match? And in his book, he said, if it's not written, it's not real. And I really rate a guy who really is the best of the best, as a leader, as a captain, all the All Blacks mean to the country, to turn the page each match and write, start again, and what will be the focus for that particular match, honestly, it's such a, a piece of gold. And where what I was thinking about when I was um, writing this piece about Richie is it makes me think about Lofty Fulton, from last week's show, because when we talked to Lofty about his default voice, uh, his depression, his anxiety, he said, that was Lofty, this is Lofty 2.0. And he put like a clear delineation when he said, GB, that was the past, this is 2.0. Turn the page, that was the last game. This is the new game. Start again, and there's there's something really powerful in that. He's actually started something between him and me when we work together now too, because it's uh, lofty. That was great, but can we do take two point please? Let's <laughs> <laughs> uh, go. We interrupt this program to bring you a special bulletin. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Right. Ladies and gentlemen, now. a quick Robbo's remarkable fact. Have we got a second? Go. Go. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. Let's go. Everybody knows Amsterdam. They've been having all sorts of trouble with people getting knocked down by cars because they've had your favourite subject, their face buried in their phone while they're crossing the road. What they've done is at the, at the pedestrian crossings, as well as having the red light on the usual place, on the, the street signs, they've now shone a red light across the footpath when the light is red so when people have their heads down in their phone, they know not to enter the intersection. Innovative, yes, but I'm sure you'll have something to say about that. Oh, apart from hashtag how sad is that? I know. It 
But it's funny, if you go back through the high performers on our show, how often we hear about people discussing situational awareness and we wonder why people get hit by buses, cars, cyclists, or get taken by surprise when their face is so far in the phone they're going to walk out into traffic. Talk about situational awareness from Christian Bacusis Boo and David Coaster and Jason Redman. I mean... Honestly, talk about sitting ducks. Imagine David Costa storming the room while he's looking at Facebook. <laughs> yeah, ready to go? Hang on a second, man. Just got this, put this post uh, up. I just got to like this post. Yeah. We don't take ourselves too seriously. I wish I knew how to quit you. The Mojo Radio Show. We have not had any advertising or sponsorship on our show for six seasons. Hello, our friends at Doseki, who actually, I've got to be honest, did give us. Mm-hmm. Two cartons of beer. Mr. Tim we Tam, did, still waiting. We, we still, <laughs> and we did get some chilli sauces from Chilli Bomb, which was sensational. However, we are now on Patreon, which is going great for us. We're putting up new rewards very shortly because we've hit our first goal, which is outstanding. And we have got Explosive Hits, which is a three-hour epic show for anybody who supports us on Patreon. You'll find the details on patreon.com or in our show notes. However, what's really interesting is that the greatest podcaster in the world in terms of numbers, a man called Tim Ferriss, has moved away from sponsors. Yeah. And anybody who follows Tim's work will know that he always starts the show with probably two minutes of ads and finishes the show with a recount of those ads He's now actually moved away to a new model and it's called Less Hustle, More Art. And he is now saying, it's a test for him, he's saying to his listeners, hey, I'm doing away with it, but if you'd like to support the show, go here and make a donation. It's kind of a Patreon. So I find that fascinating that we have never done it, but the guys who are the big guys in the world are now moving away from it. So there's definitely a trend to people being more, more discerning about their podcast use. How about that? That's pretty cool. Um, I've got a bit of a bone to pick with Tim Ferriss too, by the way. He, um, he tried to poach... Grass-fed? No, he, he, well, yeah, maybe, but he tried to poach Lola. Offered her a, a, a bigger CPU and more RAM. <laughs> he was like, well, come on. <laughs> more RAM. More RAM. That's right. The Mojo Radio Show. So during the show, we talked about mana. Do you remember Solomon Akau... Eddie Akau's brother, who did a fabulous show for us a couple of seasons ago on famous big wave surfer, lifesaver from Waikiki, Eddie Aikau. Remember we talked about mana? Yep, I do. Eddie would go was the big catchphrase from that one as well. Yeah, which is also an explosive hits. We've put the highlights in there and the, the brilliant promo you did for that show, the intro. And mana is kind of a Polynesian, Hawaiian, Maori part of their language and it means power or effectiveness or prestige. And the greatest thing that someone can say to you is that you have mana. And there are young Hawaiians, young Maoris, Kiwis, with the greatest compliment one of the elders could say is you have mana. And I got a note from a listener of the show uh, called Tess, and the note just said, mana, never leave home without it. (laughs) That's going on the studio wall. Mm. Mana, never leave home without it. I just... I reckon that's gold. I wonder what American Express have got to say about that. Though. The Mojo Radio Show. 
All right, you are going to close this show. I went mm-hmm. on to Spotify and you will find the All Blacks soundtrack. It's their pump oh, music. Come on. I've had to put up with we a whole have, show of All Blacks. We have three choices. You can close with your choice off the album. You can either you can either finish with this, Lola, play the first track that I gave you or the soundtrack for the All Blacks, please. I'm on it. Get a good uh, nah, I liked Akira last week, but yeah, you know, a bit, bit past that. We got anything rocky? Lola, play track two. No. Ooh, we might have a contender, but let's see what what's the what's the third choice? Track three, Lola. Oh, you're making it difficult. <laughs> so you are in the mm. dressing room. Mm-hmm. On your arm, you've written. Great Withered Oak. Mm-hmm. What track are you going to play to put you, get your mojo working in order to run on the field, get to every breakdown and be a great Withered Oak? Name the track. <sighs> Do you know what? My heart says ACDC, but my head says Guns N' Roses. We're up.
Joe Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see GaryBurtWhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out VoodooSound.com.au and for the right voice, RealtimeCasting.com Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.